Welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all of the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. Normally, One from the Vaults focuses on North American and European trans history over the past mm, 150 years. Part of this focus is because trans history is simply better documented in English in this period. But the bigger reason is that I'm quite mindful around trying to not impose European ideas about gender identity and sexuality onto non-European cultures, particularly the further back in time you go. But the subject of this month's episode is unique in the ways that they simultaneously encountered, embraced, and challenged Western gender roles while also in some ways contributing to the political and social formation of what we now call the Americas. I must admit that despite my interest in several intersecting threads in the story, I hadn't even heard of this month's subject until a tweet by novelist Caitlin Greenidge, author of the award-winning novel We Love You, Charlie Freeman, tweeted about it, and for this tweet, I'm deeply grateful. The world is changing rapidly around us right now, not only due to COVID-19, but also to the global uprising for Black lives in the wake of the police murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Tony McDade, among many others. When we think about the ongoing history of Black resistance, there's no more important and foundational an example than the small island nation of Haiti. The mountainous western half of the island called Hispaniola, across the border from the neighboring Dominican Republic, Haiti is the first free black nation in the western hemisphere, a distinction that countless people fought and died for in what is now called the world's only successful slave revolution in history. And in the middle of our own revolution, we are going to look back to Haiti to find a gender nonconforming revolutionary leader, a complicated mystic animated by spirits whose prophecies led a brief but powerful insurrection against the white ruling class in one of the first major battles of the Haitian Revolution. So join us as we go looking for the story of La Prophetesse, Romaine Riviere. Prior to European arrival, the island that would come to be called Hispaniola was first settled by the Saboni, then the Taino, who divided it between five caciquedoms, political units roughly equivalent to nations. Christopher Columbus arrived in 1492 and brought with him European diseases that decimated much of the indigenous population. Spanish colonizers instituted a system called encomienda, in which they enslaved indigenous people and worked them to death in gold mines. When the island began to run out of slaves, 
Europeans wrote to the Catholic Church and asked for permission to begin the mass importation of enslaved Africans to replace their disappearing labor force. Thus began the horrors of the Middle Passage. Though both indigenous American and African cultures had various forms of slavery in practice at the time, they quickly paled in comparison to the scale and brutality of the transatlantic slave trade. I want to avoid being gratuitous here, especially as there is much violence in the rest of the episode that requires description, but suffice it to say that the modern world and the industrial process which itself gave birth to capitalism was modeled on the hundreds of years of forced labor and genocide committed by largely European colonizers in the Caribbean and the Americas. Often when we think about this period, there's a tendency to anonymize the enslaved and assume that until the Haitian Revolution, enslaved people largely accepted their fate. This is quite far from the reality. African people who were bought, sold, and traded came largely from Central and West African nations, with the majority coming from Congo-speaking peoples, and this was not unintentional. In fact, slavers on all three sides of the transatlantic triangle created hierarchies of different African ethnic identities and their, quote, usefulness as slaves, with Congos at the top for their supposed hardiness as laborers. Other ethnicities would only filter into the New World later, such as the Yoruba, who enter the slave trade in large numbers only in the 19th century following the destruction of the once wealthy Oyo Empire. By the 18th century, Hispaniola was one of the most profitable colonies in the New World, producing the majority of the world's sugar. This sugar money essentially built Europe, transforming it from a number of self-important kingdoms into a global powerhouse, as well as financing the birth of the United States, Canada, and every other country in the New World. As time went on, slave revolts became increasingly common throughout the New World, a growing source of anxiety for European colonizers who were both worried about their profit margins and their own necks. The white consciousness, constructed through the act of slavery, has always had the fear that it might be treated the way it treats others as its unifying terror. But the early slave revolts were often easily quashed. Some people of African descent fled, becoming maroons in communities they hid in the forests and jungles, some of which survive today, while others managed to buy or marry their way to manumission and become so-called free people of color. On the French side of Hispaniola, then called Saint-Domingue, these hen de couleur libre became their own social class, a middle class of often mixed-race people. Being a free person of color entitled them to a limited set of rights, including the ability to run their own businesses, but it was never without the threat of possibly being forced back into slavery or into slavery for the first time for those who were born free. Romain Riviere was one such hendicolore. Likely born in what is now the Dominican Republic sometime around 1750 or so, with a baptismal record from Nuestra Señora de las Treinta Gracias, a church for which researchers can find no living record, Romain appears in the historical record first in July 1784, when they buy 32 acres of land in a place called True Coffee in what is now Haiti. They paid the extraordinary sum of 4,000 livres 
in money and animals to a free mulatto named Maurice Cavalier. I need to stop here and clarify two things. First, I will be using some language for racial designations in this episode that is inappropriate for common use in 2020. I use them carefully here because the differences in racial designations carried significant social and often legal weight in the time period and thus have an impact on the story at the heart of this episode. For example, the words mulatto and grief, neither of which I would use outside of the historical context. There simply isn't a way around using them without losing important context for the story. Secondly, this episode has a major dilemma. What pronouns to use for Romaine? Like many free people of color, Romaine was illiterate and unable to sign their own name, as attested to in multiple church records from the time. Most of the people who wrote about Romaine at the time and subsequently have used male pronouns to describe them. But interestingly, when Romaine dictated letters written down by their comrades, they insisted on feminizing it, both spelling Romaine with an E at the end and adding on the feminine title, La Prophetess. Combined with their mode of dress, which I will discuss later, there is a fairly strong argument here that were Romaine literate, they might have preferred to use a feminine pronoun to describe themselves. Unfortunately, this is an irresolvable question as Romaine is now lost to history. So, until some enterprising spirit medium can call them up, I will be erring on the side of caution here and using they-them pronouns when I describe them in English, despite the apparent anachronism, and he pronouns when quoting directly from Romaine's contemporaries. Don't you know Talking about a revolution sounds whisper. Don't you know talking about a revolution sounds like a whisper? Prior to Romaine's purchase of true coffee in 1784, not much is known about their life. We know that they were likely born free and that they were considered a grief. Grief or griffon was a racial category used to describe people who were three quarters black and one quarter white. More confusingly, some of Romaine's contemporaries simply referred to Romaine as a Spaniard due to having come from Santo Domingo on the other side of the island. While still others called Romaine a black, which was a separate racial category from both griefs and Spaniards. The consensus seems to be that Romaine was a grief, which would have been somewhat a lighter-skinned person than most of the people in Saint-Domingue at that time, including, and this is where things get really complicated, the people Romaine owned. An uncomfortable fact often left out of discussions of the transatlantic slave trade is that many free people of color, who were often of mixed race, bought, owned, and sold slaves. On the plot of land at True Coffee, Romaine ran a small coffee plantation, and despite later becoming a revolutionary leader, seems to have owned a few dozen enslaved Africans. 
This seeming dichotomy between owning slaves and leading a slave revolt has a mirror image in New Orleans, where the historical records attest that the famous voodoo queen Marie Laveau, herself a free person of color in the French Louisiana racial system, not only owned but actively bought and sold a number of slaves throughout her lifetime. Unlike Romaine, however, Laveau never freed any of her slaves. So in the years between 1784 and 1791, when our story really gets going, what happened to make Romaine, a person themselves profiting off of enslaved labor, into a revolutionary? Here things get even more complex. But first, let's talk about those in-between years. What we know about them comes largely from marriage and baptismal records. After buying True Coffee in 1784, the following year, Romaine married a woman named Marie Rose, a slave on a neighboring plantation. This marriage provided Marie Rose, as well as her three children, freedom. It's likely that the children, the eldest 11 years old at that time, were Romaine's children, which lets us assume that Romaine had probably moved to the French side of the island well over a decade before purchasing True Coffee that Romaine was able to have a decade-long relationship with an enslaved woman on a different plantation raises a lot of questions. Questions that, unfortunately, the scant historical record cannot answer for us. Romaine also served as the godfather for a number of baptisms during these years. Being the godparent for baptism signified that Romaine would have been quite a well-respected member of the community, a well-to-do free person of color among the free-colored community of Leogan and its surrounding plantations. Intriguingly, historian Terry Ray points out that being the godfather for a baptism was also often a way of secretly acknowledging parentage of children outside the bounds of Christian marriage. It is not much of a leap to consider that some or all of these children may have been fathered by Romaine, and that Romaine and Marie Rose may have had an overtly or covertly polygamous marriage, a normal feature of many of the West and Central African cultures from which they and those around them came. It may be during this period also, or perhaps only during the insurgency, that Romaine began dressing in a rather striking way. While most free people of color, male and female alike, wrapped their hair, Romaine instead wore what contemporaries described as a turban with a large plume coming out of it. They also reportedly wore women's clothing and many rosaries and chains with saint medallions around their neck. Another feature often described were the ribbons. Though it's unclear if they were worn as necklaces around certain parts of the body, or as fringe from their clothing. To say they made an impression on colonial Saint-Domingue would be an understatement. This look may have contributed to the trust many free people of color and enslaved Africans would come to place in Romaine's later prophecies. In many West and West Central African cultures prior to colonization, gender crossing was a common feature of religious practices. Among the Yoruba, for example, some male priests of the Orisha Oshun, Chango, and Oya took on female names, dressed in women's clothing, and plaited their hair in women's styles. According to researcher J. Laurent Mattery in his excellent study Sex in the Empire That Is No More, 
Some even married husbands and essentially lived as women. Throughout West and Central African cultures, spirit possession, in which the deities mount their priests in order to heal and give advice to the community, is seen as a feminine act, and those who practice it are feminized as a result. This belief in the femininity of possession persists today in Afro-diasporic religions throughout the Americas, including in Haitian Vodou. The centrality of possession in these religions may attest to the large numbers of both women and LGBT people found within their priesthoods both historically and today. One thing is clear above all. Romain was deeply religious. The coffee plantation owner constructed what their contemporaries referred to as a chapel on the plantation, and it quickly filled with a dazzling array of religious icons. During the pre-revolutionary period, religion in Saint-Domingue was complicated. On the one hand, it was an ostensibly Catholic nation in which the enslaved were obliged to be baptized. The church exercised a great deal of control over all of those in Saint-Domingue, and it was only Sundays and religious holidays that the enslaved could cease their labor under the auspices of seeking religious instruction to purify their souls. This caused consternation among white slave owners who didn't want their slaves to take any time off at all. Considering the church's role in securing their few days off, it is perhaps unsurprising that the vast majority of the enslaved were deeply religious and invested in the church. But this investment was not exclusive. Enslaved Africans had brought their own religions with them. West and Central African religions vary a great deal, but in general they are non-exclusivist. Unlike Christianity, which requires one to give up all other gods for their god, West and Central African beliefs absorb. As the sadly recently departed Haitian Vodou priestess Mama Lola used to say, more gods means more power. For many of the enslaved, Catholicism could simply be absorbed into their pre-existing beliefs, a new pantheon of powerful intercessor spirits, whom the Catholics called saints, came to sit alongside and even overlap with some of their own deities. As well, the enslaved in Saint-Domingue also absorbed each other's African spirits and languages. This absorption, often called syncretism, led to the creation of a new Creole religion. Though in its infancy in 1791, this religion would come to be called Haitian Vodou, or Sevikinen, African service. Unlike other Afro-diasporic religions, such as Cuban Santeria, Vodou represents a true fusion of West African, Central African, and Catholic beliefs as practitioners seek to serve the spirits or loi, a category of deities which includes African gods, Haitian ancestors, and Catholic saints, and some who are all three. Romaine's chapel, in which they, quote, worshipped in their own matter, according to one Catholic priest observer, resembled what many Vodou societés do today. Here's how Abbé Ouvier, who we shall soon meet, racistly described it as translated by Terry Ray, quote, The one Romaine, Spanish grief, this grief married to the Melatris, has constructed a chapel, an altar, where he celebrates the mysteries in his own way. He puts his head in his tabernacle to listen to the replies of the Holy Spirit made written by the Holy Virgin, and the Virgin's letters are found the next day in the tabernacle. 
he engages in meditation and preaches with a sword in his hand, teaching his imbecilic proselytes a doctrine that has resulted in thefts, arsons, and murders. This villain, who does not know how to read, is also a charlatan. He composes remedies and has one sign his name as Romaine's so-called prophetic. From this, we see several allusions to what may be an early form of Haitian vodou, including the use of herbal remedies. Some lois similarly speak to their followers while holding swords during possession. In fact, the only major element of the vodou we know today that seems to be missing is singing and drumming. While we cannot say for sure if Romain would have considered their fusion of religions as vodou, we can definitively say that Romain brought in many African and specifically Congo elements into their religious practice. Given that Romain came from the Spanish side of the island, it may even be more accurate to describe Romain's religious practice as an early form of what's now called 21 Divisions, the Dominican sister of vodou practiced today. Romain referred to themselves as la prophetess and as the Virgin Mary's godson. In Vodou, the Virgin Mary is syncretized with Ezili. In Vodou, the Virgin Mary is syncretized with Ezili, a group of feminine spirits that includes both the coquettish Ezili Freda and her sister, the machete-wielding Ezili Danto. We cannot say for sure if Romain worshipped these powerful lois. But there is a strong argument to be made, and one that contemporary Haitian vodou practitioners who consider Romain to have been gay do make today. So what happened to turn this mystic, gender non-conforming plantation owner who themselves owned slaves into an early leader of the Haitian Revolution? In short, one bad neighbor. Now, that's quite a massive oversimplification, of course. But revolution was in the air. With news of the French Revolution reaching across the Atlantic to Saint-Domingue and rising tensions on all sides between whites, enslaved black people, and free people of color. These tensions led La Prophetesse's neighbor, a rich white plantation owner named Joseph-Marie Tavet, to amass a small army, 100 strong, on his land to defend himself from what he, it turns out, very rightly realized was the beginning of a revolution against the whites. Romain, like many free people of color, had achieved some level of class privilege, but was deeply frustrated by how this did not free them from racism or even give them full legal rights. Seeing this white man's growing army, Romain felt pressed to become a leader for the free people of color. From the surrounding areas of Leogan, Jacmel, Grand Guive, and Petit Guive, Romain called together as many free people of color as they could muster, along with a number of petits blancs. Despite how we often think about the Haitian Revolution, researcher Terry Ray points out that in fact, quite a number of whites fought alongside free people of color and enslaved black people. 
Many of them were Petit Blanc, a group of socially disenfranchised whites. The others were largely Catholic priests. Romaine assembled their army on their plantation at True Coffee. Organizing this growing resistance under the leadership of Romaine was a high command consisting of six people, Colonel General Elia Colon, Alexandre Boursouquois, Henri Charpentier, Guo Poisson, Soliman, and Delisle de Bressol. All were free people of color, but Delisle de Bressol, a petit blanc. Romaine la prophetesse was now a prophetess proper. Emerging from their chapel, they led this army with instructions they claimed came directly from the Virgin Mary herself, like a Haitian Joan of Arc, if you will. And the first of those instructions? To sack the plantation of Joseph-Marie Tavet. On September 24th, 1791, the True Coffee insurgency raided the plantation. Quote, they penetrated further into the plantation, completely destroying it and burning it. The noise of this violence announced with many excuses that these devastators had only villainy as their motive, end quote, according to one contemporary. Having won this battle, killing and dispersing Tavet's men, the so-called Mohammed of Saint-Domingue set their sights higher. Romain envisioned themselves wrestling control of Saint-Domingue from the corrupt whites. But despite what you may be thinking, Romain likely did not want to completely abolish slavery or even sever ties with France, at least not at first. Like many free people of color in the south and west of Saint-Domingue, Part of Romaine's revolutionary motivation was, in fact, defense of both the church and the French king, whom they saw as under threat from the whites because of the French Revolution that was currently underway. While Romaine wanted enslaved Black people on their side, they didn't actually go so far as to outright free any of them. Rather, in the ensuing raids of surrounding plantations over the following weeks and months, Romaine's army would give slaves two options, join us or die. That's not quite freedom, is it? Unsurprisingly, though, enslaved Black people not only wanted to live, but also had their own motivations to revolt, and soon the numbers at True Coffee surged. It's hard to say how many men and women Romaine assembled there, But with additional Maroons coming from all around, the true coffee insurgency reached well into the thousands at its height, all under the command of a gender nonconforming mystic who claimed to be the godson of the Virgin Mary. Such was their power that Romain themselves, in fact, never seems to have stepped foot off their plantation during this time. Throughout all that follows, Romaine never once entered into battle. They quite rightly saw themselves in the role of a monarch, issuing forth their battalions. And those battalions did quick work, raising plantations all around the coastal town of Leogan in the fall of 1791. One of their most notorious acts, their calling card was to cut the whips of the slave drivers. Enter the priest. Abbé Ouvier had arrived in Saint-Domingue in 1790. 
To say that the abbe, French for abbot, was a priest is perhaps a bit of a stretch, but one that the priest certainly had no problem making to trade on the social capital it would bring him in the French colony. You see, the abbe had had to flee France in a bit of a hurry. After publishing an incendiary screed against priestly celibacy and then being caught in flagrante with a young woman, the young priest had been defrocked by the Catholic Church. Without the protection of the church, a man of his class could surely feel the coming chop of the guillotine around his neck, and so he quickly married a girl, left her, and ran off to Saint-Domingue in hopes of making money there. When he arrived, our wayward priest, he set about trying to do just that. One of his first ideas was to attempt to set up a boarding school for the children of the upper classes, who typically had to send their children back to the mother country for years at a stretch to secure an education befitting their class, a distance that damaged familial loyalty when the brats returned. Though he would later be accused by his detractors of aiding in the more murderous aspects of the Haitian Revolution and specifically the true coffee insurgency, the abbe's feelings on race showed themselves quite plainly here. His advertisement for the school assured white parents that no mulatto children would be permitted to attend. This scheme ultimately failed to materialize like many of the things the abbe had attempted in the first half of his life. Though kind of interesting in his own way as a charlatan, the abbe enters our story in December 1791. The prophetess's insurgency had been wildly successful, striking very genuine terror in the hearts of all whites in Leogan, Jacmel, and the surrounding areas. From September to December, the Truth Coffee insurgents had waged war against both Leogan and Jacmel, two of the most important coastal cities in Saint-Domingue. From September to December, the True Coffee insurgents had waged war against both Leogan and Jacmel, two of the most important coastal cities in Saint-Domingue. And by December, they were now an occupying force. Tavet, Romain's original enemy, had attempted to mount a counteroffensive, and his men had lost. Whites, free people of color, and enslaved blacks alike were becoming increasingly afraid of Romain's army. Though at the time blamed squarely on Romain, from the distance of history, it now seems clear that Romain never had a tight grip on their army. It's hard to say how much is true, because surely some details of the violence are racist exaggerations used as propaganda against La Prophetesse, but it's clear that Romain's army murdered and maimed many, many people. And though there is no evidence of any sexual violence actually occurring, much of the racist propaganda did indeed accuse Romaine's troops of raping women and girls. Given what we know about wars in general, there likely was some that occurred. But there's no insinuation that this was at Romaine's command or even that La Prophetesse would have had knowledge of it. By December 1791, the people of Leogan had begged the king of France to send troops to no effect, and they were now ready to do anything to end Romain's reign of terror. Leogan was now surrounded on all sides by camps of insurgents distinct from but following the command of True Coffee. One of these rebel camps was at the plantation of the Demaret brothers, two whites who seemed to have joined the insurgency and given their land and supplies willingly. Seizing on Romain's religiosity, 
the citizens of Leogan decided to try to negotiate with the occupying army by sending in a priest. The defrocked Abbe Ouvier somehow got the job after corresponding with Romain by letter. Romain invited the priest to true coffee in hope that the priest would say Christmas Mass in the chapel for the insurgent forces. Here is the text of Romain's letter to the Abbe, one of the only surviving pieces of writing dictated by La Prophetesse, as translated by Terry Ray. Quote, Camp of True Coffee, 24 December 1791. Monsieur Labbe, we received with much pleasure your letter of the 23rd of this month, and would be even more charmed when we can see you in person, which will be nothing but advantageous to that which we hope for by the trust that we have and that we place in you. In advance, you may count on our inviolable attachment to the love of country, to our union, and to order. To this effect, we have addressed a letter to Sir Reverend Father Menetier of the parish of St. Rose of Leogan to acquire for you all that will be necessary for you, all that you will need for the holy sacrifice of the celebration of tomorrow's holy mass. We all salute you, and we have honor, Sir Father, to be your very humble and very faithful parishioner, Romain Riviere, the prophetess, and Elie, Colonel General. The abbé left that very day at around five o'clock, arriving at True Coffee on horseback around midnight. The priest surely must have been at least slightly terrified entering the rebel camp, as the fence outside was riddled with the severed heads of the insurgents' enemies, a common victory motif of war at that time. When the priest arrived, la prophetesse was deep in prayer in the chapel, and the priest had to do some considerable smooth-talking to gain access to this most holy communion. Still, showing great piety, the priest's initial meeting with La Prophetess went well with the priest smartly choosing to converse with Romain in Spanish, a move that he believed gained some additional trust. The next day, things were less solemn, however. The priest was led through the camp, later describing the suffering faces of the captive whites he saw along the way, an image he would bring up again and again over the decades. He was taken into Romain's chapel, where la prophetesse addressed him with saber in hand. Here's how he described it. Quote, he stood before a table on which he had two pistols, holding a long saber in his hand, with which he seemed to be saluting me. Brandishing it, he directed me to a place before him. Besides him were aligned some eight to ten black or colored officers, and many others appeared armed surrounding the chapel. First, he spoke somewhat angrily of the mistreatment to which the colony's whites always subjected his people of color. This obliged him to offer himself as their leader for their protection. From there, the priest and the prophetess worked out terms of a ceasefire. In exchange for setting up Romaine and their forces as the, quote, national guards of the parish, and the city providing them with munitions, food, and other supplies, the true coffee insurgents would release all prisoners, return slaves and maroons, and cease fire on Leogan, Jacmel, and the surrounding plantations. 
To these terms, the priest and the prophetess both agreed. With that job done, it seems likely that the priest then said mass in the chapel at True Coffee as previously agreed and returned with news to Leogon a day or so later. The priest's account of returning to Leogon is really funny because it's quite self-aggrandizing. He describes himself entering the town and sort of people flocking in all around him and following him in a grand procession to the mayor of Leogan's house where he delivers the proclamation of this treaty um, and is welcomed by many cheers. This news, despite initially being met with cheers, supposedly, from the terrified citizens of Leogan, was not well received by those outside the city. One of the major leaders of the Free People of Color, Pierre Pinchinat, chastised the priest for handing over control of the city to a murderous immigrant and implored him not to sign the treaty into law. Unfortunately, Pinchinat's letter arrived too late, and by January 1st, Leogan was officially under Romaine's control. For their part, Romaine would only honor one of the conditions of the treaty. They released their prisoners. Romaine's troops continued their attacks, and over the next two months, it seems that Romaine's control over them steadily weakened. A commissaire national from France, Edmond Saint-Léger, was dispatched to deal with the situation. Saint-Léger had no desire to treat the rebels with kid gloves, demanding that all slaves return to work within three days. In the early hours of March 12, 1792, Romaine's troops mounted what would be their final offensive, descending upon the city while people slept and murdering many, including many jeunes Nicolas libres, in their sleep. Saint-Léger was woken up and quickly summoned a defense that not only repelled the insurgent forces, but ultimately defeated them entirely. Many of the retreating troops spread out into the wilderness, never to return to true coffee. A week or so later, Saint-Léger and his men raided True Coffee, capturing Romain's wife and daughter. Romain, however, was nowhere to be found. Though it appears that Romain may have been involved shortly thereafter in a failed attempt to revenge themselves upon Abbé Ovier, this is speculative at best. Romain simply drops from the historical record. Unlike nearly every other leader of slave uprisings, Romain was never found, executed, or killed in battle. So, what happened to Romain? Honestly, we don't know. It's quite possible that Romain, like many of their troops, joined other rebel camps and fought and died alongside them in the bloody years that followed. Or, perhaps like some others, fled across the mountains to their native Santo Domingo, joining the Spanish who had been feeding weapons and supplies to the rebels. We will likely never find out. Haiti would eventually secure her freedom, killing or expelling nearly all whites, except those like the Poles, who had defected and fought for black liberation. This freedom would come with what is today a billion-dollar price tag in reparations the French government forced Haiti to pay in exchange for the loss of slaves. 
This debt, the first of centuries of debts imposed upon Haiti by France, Canada, and the United States, and later the IMF and World Bank, would effectively keep Haiti in poverty. The United States would later occupy Haiti twice, and most recently, depose its first democratically elected president, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, twice. Haiti remains a beautiful, powerful, but difficult place that was devastated yet again in 2010 by an earthquake that leveled most of the country. Ground zero of that earthquake was Leogan. In the wake of this earthquake, American Pentecostal preachers have swarmed the island nation, using aid supplies and funds as an incentive for Haitians to convert to charismatic Christianity. The rise of Pentecostalism has caused a wave of violence and murders against Voudoisin, the members of the Haitian Vodou religion. It has also further marginalized the already marginal place of sexual and gender minorities, as the American evangelicals preach a virulently homophobic variant of Christianity. Trans, as we understand it in the English-speaking world, does not quite exist in Haiti. There is little access to Western medicine in Haiti, and no access to trans-related healthcare. Those who would want it would likely have to make the dangerous trip to the neighboring Dominican Republic. As well, Haitian culture has its own understanding of sexuality and gender that does not easily align with Western identities like gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender. Madivine refers to women who have sexual and or romantic attachments to other women, some of whom may present in a masculine fashion and Masisi refers to male-assigned people attracted to men, most of whom wear makeup and women's clothing, may take on feminine names and take on receptive roles during sex. Men who have sex with other men discreetly, but otherwise express themselves masculinely and father children are not considered Masisi. Most Masisi and Madivin are involved in Haitian Vodou as the religion is the only portion of Haitian society that does not discriminate. While we can't say Romain la Prophetesse was trans per se, we could perhaps see them as an early progenitor of Masisi identity. If you'd like to learn more about Haitian gender and sexuality and the role of Masisi in Vodou, I highly recommend the 2002 documentary Des Hommes et des Dieux, directed by Anne Lescott and Laurence Magloire. Romain is, in many ways, an astounding character who lived in extraordinary times. Though complicated by their ownership of slaves, they were a free Black freedom fighter in the very start of the Haitian Revolution. Likely due to their gender nonconformity, they have been largely erased from the historical recounting of the Haitian Revolution that places value on the masculine heroism of men like Toussaint Louverture and Jean-Jacques Dessalines. In fact, Romain la Prophetesse appears to be the only major leader of the Haitian Revolution who is not being commemorated in Haiti's vibrant portraiture painting tradition. But in holding two coastal cities, Leogan and Jacmel, they were, in fact, one of the most successful leaders of the Haitian Revolution, and both their mysticism and gender nonconformity give them a very special place in my heart. 
If you are moved by the story of Romaine, I'd like to invite you to make a donation to Haiti's only LGBT organization, Courage. You can find out more on their website, www.kouraj.org. That's courage.org. Thanks for joining us for another episode of One from the Vaults. One from the Vaults is written, recorded, and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is produced in London, England. This episode drew on the research of Terry Ray and was brought to my attention by Caitlin Greenidge, to both of whom I'm grateful. Check out the show notes for all the sources I used. Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night. Ah. Uh-huh.